Well, this is the time of year that we are supposed to feel happy and be filled with joy, full of good cheer. That's, um, that's what we're told. That's what we're supposed to be like this time of year. I know, that, though, that some of you have come here this morning and you come here feeling guilty. Some of you have come here feeling alone, lonely. Some of you have come here, you feel cold and spiritually dead. Some of you have come here this morning feeling poor and destitute and empty and hopeless, as if you have no resources at all to change, to do what God has commanded you to do. I know that there are people here like that. I'm not sure which ones of you they are. Some of you I know. But I know there are folks here who are not filled with happiness and joy and good cheer. And if any of those things describe you this morning, you've come to the right place. You've come to the right place because what I'm about to tell you can change your life. It's not because I'm the one who's telling you. It's not because I'm clever or because I know something that, uh, that you probably don't. But it's because of what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ and why He came. If you would turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, we've been studying through the book of Galatians with Pastor Bailey, and I can't remember when it was that we actually covered this text, but we're going to revisit it. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Galatians 4, 1 through 7 is, um, is the place in Galatians where Paul tells us why Christ came. This is Christmas in Galatians. And he tells us of the radical, earth-shaking changes that Christ came to produce in everyone who will hope in Him. And follow along as I read Galatians 4, 1 through 7. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The last verse of chapter 3, verse 29 of chapter 3, Paul introduced this whole idea of being an heir. He says in verse 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And here at the beginning of chapter 4, he's picking up that idea of being an heir and he's presenting a new analogy about life before Jesus Christ came and life after Jesus Christ came. The analogy is in verses 1 through 5. Look at it again. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, what's he talking about? In Paul's day, it was common in a Roman household for a father to set aside an inheritance for his children, but his children could only have access to that inheritance after coming of age, after growing up, after going from being a minor to an adult. And so until that date that was set by the father, the heir was no different than a slave in the household. In other words, as a minor child, he had no legal rights. He did not have access to the wealth that was promised to him, that had been set aside for him. He was under guardians and managers who took care of the inheritance for him and kept it out of his hands. Now, Paul's point in this analogy is that this is what we were like apart from Jesus Christ. We are like little, minor, immature children who are not old enough to handle money. Not old enough to get a hold of the inheritance. Not mature enough to manage life apart from outside help. Always needing someone else above us to tell us what to do. Look at verse 3. He says, in the same way. In the same way, in exactly the same way that children in a Roman household can't get a hold of their inheritance until they grow up. He says, in the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So he's saying that before Christ came, or before we entrusted Him by faith, embraced Him by faith, two things are true of us. We are children and we are enslaved. That's us. Apart from Jesus Christ, we're all like little children who are not wise, not able to make good decisions for ourselves, not able to manage our affairs. And because we are like little children, we need constant management and constant direction and constant correction and discipline from the outside. We need to be told what to do, when, and, and, and how to do it. We need external control. We need guardians and managers. He says, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, by this phrase, the elementary principles, principles of the world, he's talking about external law. He's talking about these most basic and fundamental teachings that are appropriate for an early stage of development. And, and all of us who have children know what this is like. We have children that we need to tell things. You know, you need to make your bed. You need to change your underwear before you go to school in the morning. Does someone have to tell you that? You adults? No. But with little children, you have to be told. Now, you've got to brush your teeth before you, you know, you've got you to make sure to eat your vegetables. Some of you need to be told that, but especially little children. We need rules. They need control. They need guidance. So to be enslaved to the elementary principles of the world is to be like a, to be like a five-year-old in kindergarten who's learning, to, to, uh, his, who's learning his ABCs. He's restrained. He's limited. He can only do so much. He needs constant attention. He needs constant oversight, constant instruction. He's like my little son, Nicholas, my youngest. He's actually in first grade now, but he is in this stage of life where he's learning the basics of phonics, where he's learning the basics of reading. He's not free to, to take the Shakespeare off of my uh, shelf and delve into it. He's not free to start composing sonnets. He's under the tutelage of these elementary principles. And Paul says that's what everyone apart from Jesus Christ is like. They have 
external elementary regulations and rules. They have standards for behavior. Whether it's God's standards in the Ten Commandments, whether it's the standards of our own family or culture, their own standards that they have made up for themselves. And apart from Jesus Christ, they think that if they measure up to these external standards, they'll, they'll be good people or they'll, they'll earn their way to heaven or they'll put God in a position where, where He will be forced to bless them. Now, of course, the problem, we've seen this over and over again in the book of Galatians as Pastor Bailey has preached through it. The problem is that they can't measure up to whatever standard of behavior they've set up for themselves. It's impossible. Even if it's their own standard of behavior, they can't measure up. They're always falling short. They're always missing the mark. And they're always missing the mark because the external system of regulations and rules, that external system of law, can do nothing to enable them or strengthen them on the inside to be able to obey those regulations and rules. The standards stand over them and tell them what to do, but it cannot help them to do it. And so instead of being free, they're enslaved. They're enslaved in this endless, hopeless, fruitless, exhausting struggle to make themselves righteous by their own efforts. Like little mature, immature children who are trying to read Shakespeare in kindergarten. They just can't pull it off. It's what everyone on the face of the earth is like apart from Jesus Christ. It's what you are like apart from Jesus Christ. You keep trying to measure up to whatever standard you try to live by. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that you keep falling on your face because you don't have the power inside of you. To perform and to conform. Paul says when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, of course, Paul could, God could have left things like that, couldn't he? God could have remained up in heaven, <clears throat> watching our plight, detached, disinterested, unmoved, ignoring the struggles of men and women and young people and little children, he could have just watched us from a distance and left all of us under, this, under slavery and condemnation. Just little ignorant children running around trying to do great things, but blundering and falling down all over the place. He, he could have done that. He is under no obligation whatsoever to rescue us from this slavery. But He didn't leave us that way. He did something. Look at verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> he says, But... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God acted. He did something. He did not just ignore us and leave us under slavery and condemnation. He he did something. Look at what He did. First of all, when did He act? Look what it says. Verse 4, when the fullness of time had come. So God acted exactly at the right moment in history. Everything that came before the birth of Christ was straining towards that one moment when all of God's promises would be fulfilled. Paul says the same thing in Romans 5, verse 6. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Exactly the right moment. And Jesus says the same thing in Mark 1. He has the same perspective. 
Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The time is ripe. It's all ready. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, the coming of Jesus Christ is the very center. It's the very climax, the pinnacle, the culmination of all of the ages. So Paul can say that God acted when the fullness of time had come. Everything in the history of the world was working up to this precise point when God would act. This is the center of the history of the world. This is the crux of everything. Now, what did God do when the fullness of time had come? He says in verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God the Father, this, this majestic, sovereign, glorious King of the universe, sent forth His own Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. God the Father is the one who initiates this. He is the one who plans it, who does it. He is the one who sent the Son. It was His purpose and His plan and His loving heart that overflowed when He sent His Son. Don't ever think that Jesus is nice, soft, kind, and God is somehow hard. It is the love of God that sent forth His Son. And who is God's Son? Who was sent? He says, God sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law. First of all, it's God's Son who was sent. God sent forth His Son. Jesus Christ was not just a man. He was not just some good teacher. He's not just a mere mortal. He's not just better than the rest of us. He's the Son of God. And He had existed forever and ever. There was never a time when the Son of God did not exist as the Son of God. He didn't come into being when God the Father sent Him into the world. He had always existed. That's why the Son was there to be sent in the first place. Because He has always existed in fellowship with His Father. So the Son is the eternal Son. He's the Son of God. But He's not just God. He's also man. He says, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. The Son who came into the world is not just a phantom. He's not, a, he's not just pretending to be a man. He doesn't just look like a man. He is a man. He actually took on flesh and blood. He took on human nature. He actually entered into the womb of a real, normal, sinful, young virgin woman and became a baby. The book of Hebrews puts it like this. In Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on flesh and blood. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. The Son of God who was sent into the world was every bit as human as you and I are. And our salvation depends on it. He experienced pain and hunger and thirst. He suffered sadness and disappointment. He knew joy and gladness. He laughed and he cried. Everything that you are, he was. Except for sin. <clears throat> and Paul even says in verse 4 that he was born under the law. 
He was born under the rule and the subjugation of law. The only difference was he was able to keep it. You're not. I'm not. He was. For him, being under the law did not mean to be under sin like it does for you and me. For us, to be under the law means automatically to be under sin because we cannot obey the law. And the law can't help us to obey it. But for Jesus Christ, since he was not a slave of sin like you and I are, he had the internal capacity to obey the law. And that's exactly what he did. He came to this earth and he took on human flesh and blood and human nature and he lived the perfect life. He perfectly obeyed God's holy law. Every detail of every aspect of every law, he kept it and fulfilled it. His every motive, his every thought and desire and word and action, everything he was and did and wanted, it was all in perfect conformity to God's holy, righteous law. There was no sin in him. It's amazing that in John 8.46, think of this. Jesus Christ himself is able to stand before men who want to kill him. Men who, who would love to find fault with him. And he can look them in the eye and he can say to them, which one of you convicts me of sin? I couldn't stand before you <laughs> and say, which one of you convicts me of sin? I could, but I'd get answers back, you know. When Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, Pilate says three times to the Jews, I find no guilt in this man. After Jesus has been crucified, he's hanging between two thieves who've, who have seen the Roman soldiers slap him and strip him and whip him and nail him to a cross, the one thief can still say to him, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. The two men who were closest to Jesus as he lived on this earth, Peter and John. Peter and John, men who, who walked with Jesus, who worked with him, who slept with him, who ate with Jesus for three years straight. Peter and John, who had every opportunity to see Jesus Christ slip up and let down his guard and to see all the inconsistencies in him that all of you would certainly see in me if you spent three years with me or three hours or three minutes. Peter and John look back on the life of Jesus Christ and they conclude one thing. Jesus Christ was righteous. First Peter 1.19, Peter says that Jesus Christ was like a lamb without blemish or spot. He knew him. 1 John 2.1, John says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's why the author of the book of Hebrews can say, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ was a man. But he was a perfect man. He was under the law, but he was able to keep the law. Now, why is that so important? It's, it's so important because of why Jesus Christ came in the first place. If you take away any of those things, you lose everything. You take away him being God, there is no salvation for you. You take away him being man, there's no salvation for you. You take away him being sinless man, there's no salvation for you. 
Why did God send forth His Son? Why did God send forth His Son to be born of a woman and born under the law? Paul says at the beginning of Galatians 4.5, he says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He sent His Son both to live the righteous life that the law requires and to die in the place of sinners who have not lived the righteous life that the law requires. He came to redeem those who were under the law, to buy sinners out of the slave market of sin. He came to purchase men and women and young people and little children out from under the condemnation that the law pronounces on them. How did He do this? Galatians 3.13 has told us, as we've gone through the book of Galatians, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So God sends forth His Son. He sends Him forth on a mission. He hasn't just come to show us what love is. He hasn't just come to influence us, to make us like Him by seeing how good He is. He didn't just come to give us warm feelings and help us to get along with one another. He came to die. He came and He took on a human body and a human nature so that He could be nailed to a tree and die. How can you die if you're not a man? He came as a man so that He could die. So that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death. He sent forth His Son to redeem those who are under the law. But why? Why did God send forth His Son to redeem those who are under the law? What's the purpose of our redemption? He says in verse 5, God sent forth His Son to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The purpose of your redemption is your adoption. He sent forth His Son so that sinners like you and I could be His sons. God sent forth His Son to redeem sinners like us from our slavery to sin and from the curse of the law so that He could give us full rights as sons. Because of redemption, sinners like us can be part of this family of God with God as the Father, with Jesus Christ as our older brother. We can have access to the throne of grace with boldness. We can be pitied and protected and provided for and disciplined by God as a loving Father. And if we are sons, then He will never cast us off. Jesus Christ left eternity and came into the world and was born of a woman and took on human flesh and human nature and He perfectly obeyed God's law and He died in the place of lawbreakers also that sinners like you and me could be sons. Sons of God, adopted into His family by free grace. Not because we've been good enough to earn it, but because He is great and glorious in His mercy and in His love and His goodness towards sinners. Now, there's a danger in me saying these things to you. There's a danger in our hearing these truths again and again. The danger is that we begin to take them for granted. And we, we may begin to be so familiar with these things. This is what you expect to hear when you come to church around Christmas time, isn't it? Jesus Christ came, took on a body so that He could die for sinners. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
The danger is hearing these truths and taking them for granted. Becoming so familiar with these ideas that we, that we see over and over again in God's Word. Over and over again in the book of Galatians. that They, they just remain just that. They remain just ideas. We can be some, become so used to hearing about this that it just washes over us. We put, it, uh, we, put, we put it in a little box on the shelf in our minds. Store it away. It doesn't really have anything to do with our experience. It doesn't have anything to do with how we actually live. It doesn't have anything to do with how we love one another or love our wives or submit to our husbands or raise our kids or, or drive down the road or do our work. But God won't let us get off so easily when He presents His truth to us. Because He doesn't just give us the facts and tell us to file them away ready for a theology quiz. He tells us the implications. The so what of the truth. What are the real life implications of being a redeemed son of God? Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, God has sent forth His Son to redeem you so that you can be a son yourself? Why? Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There they are. There are these implications of being a son. He says in verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see, your sonship has amazing implications, not just in the realm of ideas. It's not just about getting the facts right. It has amazing implications in the realm of your experience. If you are a son of God, then God has sent forth not only His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but He has also sent forth the Spirit of His Son. And He hasn't just sent forth His Spirit into the world in general. He has sent forth the Holy Spirit into our hearts into particular hearts, the hearts of all of those who are His sons because they've been redeemed. He has, taken, he has sent the Holy Spirit to take up residence at the very center of who we are, at the core of your personality. He has sent the Spirit of His Son to dwell there. He has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart. God the Father has sent forth God the Son so that God the Holy Spirit could come and invade the hearts of God's people. And when the Holy Spirit comes into the heart of an adopted Son of God, it produces experience. You cannot get away from it. You cannot take this in a box and set it aside and have it not touch you in terms of your life. The Spirit comes into our heart and He does something. He causes us to experience the intimate love of the Father. He causes us to respond to our Father with joyful glad-hearted, intimate bursts of prayer and praise and communion with Him. That's what it says. The Spirit comes into our hearts crying out, Abba, Father. Most of you will know this, that this word Abba, it's a, it's a Hebrew word, an Aramaic word. It's a word that they would have spoken back then. It's the most intimate and joyful word that a child can speak to his father. 
It's a word of familiarity and respect and relationship and sweetness and warmth. It's not some cold, formal, granite title. By the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, it is a genuine, deep expression of the experience of being a son of God. Uh, Those of you who have children know what I mean. Every day when I walk into my house after work, my children experience this very same thing. Hopefully yours do too. As soon as I hit the door, I am mobbed. You You know what it's like? Mobbed. I'm mobbed by four boys crying out, Papa, Papa, Papa. And if they were Hebrew, they'd be crying out, Abba, Abba, Abba. That's what they're saying. They're not just reciting facts. You know, they're not coming forward and reciting a dissertation about the fathership that I have, you know, and, and the technical details about this and, and all the... It's just... They're not using a formal title to address me. Their hearts are full of joy to see me because they love me and they know that I love them and they can't help but to have the very real experience of being moved to cry out, Papa, you're home! That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, to be a son is to have the experience of the Holy Spirit witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't come just to fill our minds with true thoughts. He comes to fill our very hearts with true experience, with spiritual experience, with the experience of being a loved son of a loving, good, wise father. And that, that, that produces all kinds of good fruit. If you know that your son, that you are a son of a father who loves you, and that father has, has laid himself out for you, and he has provided for you, and he has even sent his son to die for you, and he has redeemed you, and he has rescued you, and he has given you an inheritance, and he has made promises to you that he will never break, And He's done it not out of some kind of a cold, calculating precision, but out of the warmth of relationship and love and, and, and delight. When you know that's the case, and that Father commands you to do something, how do you respond? You respond like a son. Like a son who is loved by his father and who loves his father back. When my sons get old enough, I won't have to tell them to, you know, put on clean underwear in the morning and brush their teeth and catch the door and go outside and, and, uh, and help, help mama with the, with the groceries pick up the stuff that they see lying around. My older sons are getting, just barely, getting to the place where they start to do some of those things on their own. Why? 
I haven't changed the rules. The rules have become what they love. Because they love me. Because they know I love them. So Paul concludes in verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're no longer the minor child who is too immature to manage his own affairs, and you're certainly no longer a slave who has no permanent place in the household. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. You stand to freely inherit all the riches of your father. But none of that happens by your own effort, your own goodness. He says it all happens through God. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that this is the, the, the time of year when we're all supposed to feel happy and joyful and full of good cheer and that there's some of you here this morning who have come here feeling guilty or lonely or cold and spiritually dead and poor and destitute and empty. And I said that if you have come here and that's you, you have come to the right place. You've come to this, this place and it's the right place to be because we have just seen what Christmas is all about, what it's really about. It's about a great God who in mercy sends His own eternal glorious Son into the world to be born of a woman and to take on all that it means to be a human except for sin. For this Son to live in the flesh a, a perfect life, a life of a perfect lawkeeper, and to die the death that lawbreakers deserve so that we could have real life, so that we could have real reason for happiness and joyfulness and eternal good cheer. He came to give us merciful redemption and intimate relationship and spiritual experience and free inheritance. Merciful redemption for the guilty. Are you feeling guilty? Do you know your guilt? Where do you go with it? You go to Christ with it. Merciful redemption for the guilty. Your guilt is real. It's not just a feeling to shove. It's real. And Christ gives you redemption for your guilt. Intimate relationship with God the Father for the lonely. There is no relationship in this world that's going to satisfy you. God has promised to be your Father. Genuine, satisfying spiritual experience for the cold and the spiritually dead. The experience of knowing Him as your Father and crying out to Him, Abba, Father. And He's given free and, and rich inheritance for the poor and the destitute and the empty. Everything that's God's is yours. All the fullness, all the richness, all the wisdom is yours in Christ. And that is why Jesus Christ came. That is why Jesus came. That is why God sent forth His Son he came to make sinners into sons. And the only way that you can benefit from this is to turn away from your own works and to abandon all your hope in your own goodness and to forget about your own fruitless efforts at law-keeping and standard-fulfilling and come to Jesus Christ by faith. Paul says in Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. Some of you have never done that. And your only hope is if you do it now. Some of you have done it. 
And yet you still feel like a slave and you have no idea what I'm talking about. This experience of knowing him as your father. And you, you both need to do the same thing. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from your pride. Turn away from your self-satisfaction and your self-reliance and your self-effort, your self-justification. And embrace Jesus Christ by faith and rest in what He has done, not in what you can do. Put all of your hopes for being right with God, all of your hopes for being loved by God in what He has done, not in what you can do. And if you do that, if you have done that, if you will continue to do that, you can be free from your guilt free from your loneliness in your coldness and your emptiness and you can know God as your Father. And that will change everything. Let me pray for you that God would help. Lord, I ask that you would make these things real to us. They are simple things, Lord. In a sense, they are obvious things. There are things that those who have been in churches have heard over and over and over again. Father, I pray that you'd save us from, from taking them lightly. Help us to be moved by the reality of them. I pray, Lord, for those who are here and who have never understood why Christ came, never understood who he is. I pray, Lord, that they would bow their knee to Him. I pray for those of us here, Lord, who have bowed our knee to You, who are Christians, and yet who are constantly living in in slavery to fear, in slavery to sin, in coldness of heart, deadness. Lord, have mercy on us. Forgive us for turning away from You. Help us to turn to You. Help us to know the Spirit crying out in our hearts, Abba, Father. Send Him now, we pray. As we gather around this table together, as brothers and sisters, as we gather around Your table, our Father, as Your Son is served to us, let us taste Him. Let us taste that the Lord is good. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.